Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is the president of Christendom College in Front Royal, Virginia. He received both his licentiate and doctoral degrees in ascetical and mystical theology from the Angelicum in Rome. In 2002, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell was appointed a consultor to the Pontifical Council for the Family by Pope St. John Paul II. He's a Knight Grand Cross of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, a frequent lecturer on EWTN. Dr. O'Donnell is also on the Board of Advisors for the Institute on Religious Life, the Cardinal Newman Society, and our own Institute of Catholic Culture. He's published two books, Heart of the Redeemer and Swords Around the Cross, Dr. O'Donnell and his wife, Catherine, who is joining us tonight, have nine children, and I leave just a blank here because I can't keep track. What's the number now? They can't keep track. Let's round up to 13. Right, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, they reside in Stephen City, uh, but mo most importantly, um, Dr. O'Donnell is a... Uh, your brother in Christ and fellow parishioner here at Sacred Heart. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Can you hear me all right? It is a real joy to be with you, see some familiar faces here. So I'm really nervous. Okay, that's great. <laughs> it's great to be with you all. Let's go ahead and begin with a prayer if we could. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Passage from Scripture. It is now the hour for you to wake from sleep, for our salvation is closer than when we first accepted the faith. The night is far spent, the day draws near. Let us cast off deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Amen. What a great joy to be with you this evening on such a glorious feast day, the patroness of our nation. Um, and to have this as a topic. Uh, are you okay if we do a little bit of history tonight? Okay. Well, let's start with this. No event in the history of the world has had such a profound impact as the coming of Christianity. And that means the coming of Jesus Christ. Any historian worth his salt would acknowledge that and would say that. Many persons before since Jesus have claimed that they were going to speak about God, and there have been some, but none have been so precisely predicted, so universally expected, nor so anxiously awaited. Now let's sort of unpack that. One of the reasons why Christianity was able in such a short time to replace so many pagan religions and mystery cults had to do with the expectation of the world at that time. First of all, there were Jewish prophecies over a thousand years old that spoke very specifically about where, how, this Messiah was supposed to come and what would happen and what would characterize him in his life. The anointed one, the Messiah, how he would suffer, how he would die. So the Jews had great expectations, especially having read the prophet Daniel and that fourth kingdom, the kingdom of iron, which was the kingdom of Rome. It made them feel that that son of man, that mysterious image, the son of man before the throne was going to come at any time. So there was great, great expectation on the part of the Jewish people. But even among the pagan Romans, according to their historian Tacitus, there was an expectation that a ruler of the world was going to come out of Judea. Now of all the places, 
on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, there'd be a place where a world ruler was going to come. Josephus, uh, the historian, even echoes that sentiment. He thought it was going to be Vespasian, the emperor. That's what it's referred to. But there was this sort of expectation that something like that was going to come out of Judea. But there were other things that had a big impact as well. And one of the books that I want to recommend for your reading this Advent, or if it's not too late, Pope Benedict's great book, all right, Jesus of Nazareth, the shortest of the three volumes. This is on the infancy narrative. Great book, great read. Very inspiring for me. And I think you would find it very beneficial if you're interested in some of the things we're going to be talking about uh, this evening. But he meant, the Holy Father mentions Virgil's fourth eclogue. Virgil's fourth eclogue is very intriguing, written during the age of the great Augustus, Caesar Augustus. And in that fourth eclogue, very strange, he says something rather intriguing. He talks about the fact that there will be the return of the virgin, and a new age will come. And the virgin returns from the heights of heaven, and a new generation descends. A child is born and the race of iron ceases, and a race of gold shall arise all over the entire world. He shall rule the world and shall receive divine life, and he will be a child of peace, and the serpent shall die." Kind of interesting, don't you think? Pope Benedict thought that was very, very interesting. And there's a very ancient account Part of the golden legend where you had a series of sources from the second century up to the 13th century that were brought together by blessed James. And one of the stories that was told was that Augustus Caesar himself actually saw a vision of what was spoken of by Virgil in this fourth eclogue. He saw this woman in the sky with this child and was so moved by that that he actually had an altar built called the Araceli, the altar of heaven, to this image. And if you go to Rome today and you climb up on the Capitoline Hill, there is a church there called the Araceli. It's run by the Franciscans right now. And that altar that was built by Augustus Caesar is preserved in that church. And you can see it to this day. And they even have a column with August that has Augustus Caesar's name on it that's preserved in that chapel as well. Very, very intriguing. But there are other things as well that happened. Just maybe right around 20 or 16 BC, over in the district of Trastevere in Rome. Now, Trastevere means across the river. That was the place where the Jewish community lived back at that time. And right around this time, there was a fountain of oil that just opened up out of the ground, and that oil flowed all the way down into the Tiber River. Now, if you're Jewish and you see oil flowing, when you think of oil, what was oil used in the Jewish tradition? Does anyone know? The anointing. What's the Messiah called? The anointed one. Oh, gosh, I love this group. This is amazing. All right. Yeah, it's called the anointed one. So that increased all of this expectation. This flow of oil indicates that something great is about to happen. So it really heightened expectation. And of course, Christians looking back on that incredible event will say, it's a reference to the Blessed Mother. It's a reference to the conception, the coming of the Chosen One. And there were other things that happened, too, along with this. You also had an interesting situation where you actually had, at this particular time, a beautiful altar. We'll talk more about it a little later that was actually erected in Rome to celebrate the fact that during the reign of Augustus Caesar, the entire world was at peace. The whole world was at peace. But there were other strange things that happened, too. If you forgive me, I'm going to have to give you a couple of quotations, but if the quotations are telling a story, that's okay, isn't it? Can you handle that? Well, right around 30 AD, they began to notice something very interesting, something rather strange, that many of the pagan oracles at Dodona, Delphi, elsewhere, that had been given sort of prophecies to the pagan sibyls and things like that, they all seemed to stop. They weren't working anymore. And the writer Plutarch, who was Greek, but wrote and was very much a Romanized Greek, 
actually, this became such a big thing that he wrote about it. It's called The Passing of the Oracles. Why were the oracles stopping everywhere around 30 AD? So this is what he has. He's sort of speculating. What were these spiritual beings that were communicating mystically through these pagan oracles? And so he writes, as for the death among such beings, I once heard a story from a man who was not a fool nor a deceiver. He was Epitherses, the father of the orator Emilianus, whom some of you have heard of. And he was a fellow citizen of mine and a teacher of grammar. He said that once, on a voyage to Italy, he was traveling in a ship that carried merchandise and a large number of passengers. It was evening when near the Enchiriades Islands, the wind dropped, and the ship drifting drew on near to Poxy. Some of the passengers were still awake. Many were still sipping their after-dinner wine. Suddenly, from the island of Poxy, a voice was heard calling loudly for Thomas, so that they were all surprised. For Thomas was an Egyptian pilot not known by name to many of those on board. Twice he was called and did not answer. But the third time he replied to the caller, who was then raising his voice, said, when you are opposite Palodes, proclaim that the great Pan is dead. On hearing this, said Epitherses, they were all thunderstruck and debated among themselves whether it would be better to obey the order or disregard and ignore it. And Thomas decided that if the wind were blowing, he would sail past and say nothing. But if it were calm and the sea quiet, he would call out what he had heard. As he came opposite Pelotas, there was neither wind nor wave. So standing on the stern, facing the land, he shouted what he had heard. Great Pan is dead. Even before he had finished, there rose a great moan of sorrow and astonishment from not one but a multitude of voices. There were many people on board the ship, so that the story spread quickly to Rome. And Thomas was sent for by the Emperor Tiberius, who then had a search for Pan. But guess what? He never found Pan. All right. But Pan, of course, was the god who symbolized paganism. The fathers of the church reading this account are saying, we know what's going on. Christ has come. We're entering into the age of grace, and the time of those oracles is over. It's done with. Even when we got to 361 AD, when Julian the Apostate tried to re-enkindle paganism everywhere, he tried to start up the great tradition at the Oracle at Delphi. But he got a response from the old priest at Delphi. Tell your king that the good times are over, that there is no roof or magic laurel tree for Apollo, and that the Holy Spring has ceased to flow. The end of Delphi sort of intriguing to reflect upon as we look at all of these different things that are taking place here. Now, a couple of comments that I want to make on this as we, we go on from here. You have Jewish prophecies. You have the Roman experience, all of which heightened that sense of longing and that sense of great expectation. Among the Greeks also, there was a sense that somehow there would be some type of a divine word that would come down and would have to teach mankind the truth. Fulton Sheen tells us that even in distant China, thousands of miles away in the records of the Celestial Empire, there's an entry where the emperor's making inquiry, what is that incredibly strange light shining up in the sky? And the Chinese sages says, we believe that is the star of the saint of the West, whose religion would one day come to this country. Intriguing. Now, of course, today many people try to strip Christianity down as if it's nothing but the social gospel, right? As if Christ, he's a good man, and he came basically just teach people to love everybody, and everything's just reduced to universal love. Now, if that's all Jesus was, he didn't really need to come, because 400 years before the coming of Christ, there was a Chinese stage by the name of Moti. How many have ever heard of Moti? Okay, someone's heard of Moti. That's great. Well, he was a great philosopher, taught some of the deepest sentiments in the human heart. He taught the universal love of mankind. We have to love everybody in mankind. But within 100 years after his death, nobody remembered. His followers disbanded. Why was that? Well, first of all, Moti was just a man. He was only a man. All right? Maybe a good man, maybe an inspired man who spoke these deep truths of the human heart. 
but there was nothing that he could give that could enable human beings to love that way. And that's a big difference. The uniqueness of Jesus of Nazareth was that he was not just a teacher. He wasn't just a philosopher. He was not just a prophet. He was all of those things. But I almost hate to say it because it almost trivializes to say it. He was, in fact, the God, the creator of heaven and earth made man. And he came primarily not to teach, although teaching was a big part of what he did. He came primarily to redeem through his suffering and death, to reconcile, basically, fallen man with an all-good creator. The essence of Christianity lies in three great truths, three great truths of our faith. First, the incarnation. God became a man in Jesus Christ. Second great truth, the redemption. He came to suffer and to die to forgive men's sins. And third, it is a religion of God-given grace. In other words, grace is given that makes a life of virtue and makes a life of goodness possible. The ancient philosophers praised this life, but humanly speaking, were never able to really live it. Christianity in many ways was radically different from Judaism and from the Greco-Roman beliefs and the Eastern mystery cults at that time. The closest we come to was the belief of the Stoics, who said, well, you know, if you sort of endure suffering, you can gain a certain wisdom. And you have the writings of Marcus Aurelius, but there's a cold wind that blows through the writings of Marcus Aurelius, a cold wind of despair, because you're just sort of enduring it, hoping you will gain some type of wisdom and self-control. But the idea that suffering could be the unique channel of God's grace, that is something that is unique to Christianity. It's not found anywhere else. And God himself suffers and was meant to draw us ever, ever closer. Jesus takes this sense of suffering and tragedy so much a part of our human experience, and he raises it up to a new dignity by willingly taking it on himself. And the praise that he gives to the downtrodden, we hear it so often that it's a problem we get fatigued because it's familiar. We don't realize how radical it is. When God opens his mouth and speaks and says, blessed are the poor, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you when men persecute you and assault you and say every kind of evil against you because of my namesake. Rejoice and be glad. That kind of teaching, that kind of insight was bound to cause a major change in the world. The Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews all went to their temples for good fortune, for fame. Not bad things, good things to pray for. But the idea that anyone who was really poor and suffering was cast off, was rejected by God. Same way lepers were treated in the New Testament. You know that from your scripture studies, all right? That's what we're dealing with. So the church appeared in the world with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The great scripture quote that I want to reflect with you on tonight, and the students that I have in my Ancient Biblical World course at, at Christendom know this very well. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 to 6. I'm doing this for Father because he would be upset if I didn't quote some scripture tonight. So anyway. But Galatians 4, verses 4 to 6 says this. In the fullness of time, St. Paul, very important. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. Thank you, Mary. It's her day today. Without Mary, there's no Jesus. So we should always be saying, thank you, Jesus, for Mary. And Mary, thank you for Jesus. All right. When the fullness of time was come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem them who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Do you see how all the great truths are in that one verse? Incarnation, redemption, and then the life of grace, because it's the life of grace that makes us sons and daughters of God. Does that make sense to everybody? That's all found in Galatians. That expression that St. Paul uses, though, the fullness of time, 
presupposes that there was a period of development during which mankind was being prepared for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Chosen One, because the kingdom of God did not just sort of come on the scene unannounced. We've already talked about Jewish prophecy, Roman expectation, and Greek expectation in the world at that time. But the Redeemer was first promised. Does anyone remember when the Redeemer was first promised to us? I'll give you a hint. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Where do we begin? Thank you, Genesis. All right, good. Now, are there any Protestants here who can really help us out? <laughs> okay. Genesis chapter... Three, that's right. Right after the fall of Adam and Eve, as soon as they fall, immediately God promises a redeemer. He curses the serpent, but he stays on the side of his creation, stays on the side of Adam and Eve. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The only time in sacred scripture where there's a reference to the feminine seed, the only time. And there's a reason why it's just the feminine seed right? Because we're going to have a virginal conception, all right? Your seed and her seed, promising of the Messiah, all right? But we have to admit that his coming was delayed for thousands of years. Now, you try to think, make sense of that. Why did it take so long for Christ to come? Man had to learn by experience the evil and misery of sin, and recognize the fact that he could not save himself. We needed a divine liberator. Now, just imagine for just a moment here. If you're in a situation where you did something really wrong, you drank so much, you're drunk, you got in your car, and on the way home you hit someone in your automobile, and you killed someone, you seriously injured someone, or you committed adultery, or you gossip maliciously about somebody and really just destroyed their reputation. And there was absolutely nothing you could do to get rid of that. You know what we take for granted a lot in our church? One of Jesus' greatest gifts to us. Sacrament of reconciliation, confession. There's no way out. That was the state of the world before the coming of Jesus Christ. The blood of goats and bullocks and lambs did nothing. There was no forgiveness. There was a sense of despair. Even the pagan Romans who knew there had to be some type of sacrifice to make up for some kind of sin had what they called the tarabolium, where they would slaughter a bullock on this large grill, and then the blood would drip on them. They'd walk under it and allow it, believing in some way that the blood of this sacrificed animal might help have their sins forgiven. They were kind of right about something, right? They were on to something, but they were still wrong because the bullock's not going to forgive anybody, all right? But this longing, this sense of being imprisoned in one's sin. Now, in order that the hope of a future redeemer would not completely vanish from the face of the earth, God eventually chose Abraham, remember this, and made a special pact with him in chapter 12 of Genesis where he said to Abraham, in you... Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In him. Because what was in him? The future Messiah was going to be born of that people. And to keep that people faithful. You have to remember how strange the Jews were. Everybody else on the planet was polytheistic. We're so used to monotheism, we think it's the most logical, clear thing. Everybody was polytheistic. There was only one people. That's why you have to not be jaded anymore and come back and look at this with fresh eyes. The Jewish Hebrew people were incredibly unique. Only one God. Only one God. And it was really difficult for them to hold on it and maintain that faith. That's why God kept sending these inspired, almost crazy men to them who we call prophets to try to keep them faithful. There was a predictive element, but remember they were also constantly trying to keep them faithful to their religious faith. So divine providence then chose that moment in time for the incarnation 
when mankind had sufficiently prepared to profit by the complete revelation that was about to be given by Jesus Christ. In this case, as St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, the imperfect preceded the perfect that men might be able to appreciate the latter. In other words, the New Testament was preceded by the Old Testament, which was less perfect, so that when you get to the New Testament, you see that the law is not destroyed, but it is made perfect. It is completed. It is fulfilled. And that's what Jesus is going to do. So there is profound philosophical and historical meaning in that phrase of St. Paul, the fullness of time. And in our class, at Christendom, we spent an entire semester looking at Greek, Roman, and Hebrew culture, thinking and reflecting upon what made this moment the fullness of time. Now, let's talk about Judea before the coming of Christ. 322 BC, Alexander the Great, and he was great, probably the greatest general who ever lived, conquered Judea. And the Jewish state that had originated at the time of King Cyrus of Persia no longer existed. And then Judea, the Holy Land, and the Jewish people living there were incorporated into the great kingdom of Syria, the, what we call the Seleucid Empire. All right? And these Hellenistic Syrian kings governed Judea. Then eventually you got this really bad king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, the divine manifestation, who says, everyone in my kingdom is going to worship the pagan Greek gods. Everyone. And that included Judea. And it's the first serious religious persecution we know of in history. And then there was one family that rose up and became leaders called the Maccabees, if you've ever read the book of Maccabees. And there's that great scene where they're trying to press Matthias, Maccabeus, into sacrificing, and he's holding back. He doesn't want to do it. And then one Jewish man comes up to sacrifice to the pagan gods, and he's filled with anger, takes out a sword, and he slays him and says, everyone for the Lord, out to the desert. And they go out to the desert, and that begins the great uprising of the Maccabees. And they fight an incredible war of independence, which you can read about in First and Second Maccabees, and they win their war. They gain their independence very significantly. So 142 BC, it is an independent kingdom again. Amazing. Free, independent. Many Jewish leaders, rabbis, etc., thought that the Maccabees were going to be the source of the Messiah because we've got our political liberation now. We've got a great military. We had Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, et cetera, et cetera. The temple was just saved and reconsecrated. Celebration of Hanukkah, that's what we're talking about. It's all in the book of Maccabees. And so that was all going on. But what happened, religious quarrels between the Jews themselves, religious conflicts, all of these began to emerge. And that began to make many of the Jewish rabbis at the time begin to think, well, we're kind of disappointed in this, but perhaps when the Messiah comes, he will really be a great spiritual teacher, not a temple ruler, but a great spiritual teacher. And many of the rabbis, looking at the prophets, began to really struggle with some of the prophecies, especially the prophecy of Daniel, one like a son of man, standing before the great throne and what he's called, all right? How can this be? Who is this figure? And whoever it is, they recognize it as messianic, but the figure appears to be divine. Then there's the disturbing prophecies concerning Isaiah, which a number of the rabbis in the Targums commented upon, trying to deal with, with some of these passages that are very, very difficult to understand, especially if you don't understand the Trinity, which has not been revealed yet. But you all know Handel's Messiah, right? Y'all know Handel's, hopefully you do. There's no salvation outside Handel's Messiah this time of year, so you gotta get, make sure you listen to it. Be sure you listen. There's also no salvation outside Magnificat, so be sure you have a Magnificat. But anyway, you remember this part in Handel's Messiah, my favorite part of it, and it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now here's the real problem. The Mighty God, it'll be called Mighty Yahweh. <laughs> the everlasting father, okay? That's the Messiah. How can the Messiah be God? It's a problem, all right? And so they struggled with it and tried to come to a deeper understanding, but there clearly was an expectation of an astounding figure, astounding figure. 63 BC, moving forward, Judea gets conquered by the Romans. Pompey comes in. 
seizes control of Jerusalem. 12,000 Jews try to stop him from coming into the temple. They're all slaughtered. Pompey actually enters into the temple, pulls back the great curtain and walks into the Holy of Holies, the great sanctuary in the Jewish temple, looks around. We don't know exactly what he saw. We don't know exactly what he thought. But when he came out, he appointed a high priest and said, resume the sacrifices in this temple. And so even though it became part of the Roman Empire, the Jewish religion faith was no longer persecuted, and they were allowed to continue to practice their faith. So for a long time, the Romans allowed Jewish kings to rule Judea, but with the death of Herod, and the date of his death is disputed now, when Herod died, they placed Judea under the rule of a Roman governor who was called a procurator. And the way the Roman Empire worked, if a particular province was pacified, it was under the authority of the Roman Senate. If it was turbulent and difficult, it came directly to Caesar. So when someone's talking about a coin of tribute and whose image is on it, it fits. Because Judea was a very rebellious province and was directly under Caesar. And Caesar appointed a procurator who allowed the Jews to conduct their affairs as they wished in every way, except they couldn't kill anybody, all right? If it required capital punishment, they wanted to kill somebody, they had to get the procurator's permission. Sound familiar to everybody? Okay, it's like the more we study history, the more we study the structure, the more we begin to see how our gospels are historic and true. The fact that the Jewish people had ceased to be an independent nation, they were part of the vast Roman Empire at the time we're focusing upon tonight is of tremendous importance, great significance for the spread of the gospel. Augustus Caesar became the emperor in 27 BC, and he reigned as emperor all the way to 14, like 41 years as emperor. And the amazing thing throughout that time, there were no civil wars. The borders were manned by legions that defended them. The entire world was at peace. It was a period of time that the world never forgot. It was called the Pax Romana. Cities flourished, trade flourished, Roman roads, Roman shippings. The Mediterranean became known as Mare Nostrum. It was our sea. The entire world was at peace. Isn't that interesting? When the Romans went to war, in the Roman form, there was the temple to the god Janus, and they would open the temple door, and they would bring out the spear, and the spear would stay out there while they were in a state of war. The temple of Janus was closed throughout the reign of Augustus. There was no war. As a matter of fact, it was such an incredible thing. Everyone was working. The whole world's at peace. Augustus is such a great man that they actually built a magnificent temple to peace called the Arapachis, and it's been completely reconstructed. If you go to Rome, right on the side of the Tiber, they found all the pieces. It was only described in classical literature. They found it, and they have reconstructed it. It was constructed in around 13 BC, celebrating the fact that the entire world is at peace and in a state of peace. There were also strange things going on in the sky. There have been many attempts to try to capture what was the star of Bethlehem, for example. But astronomers have worked because we can go back now with computers, et cetera, to go back to reconstruct what the sky was like. And what we find between seven, actually going back to 12, but especially from seven to two BC, there were phenomenal things going on in the sky. Remember, there's no artificial light. And in the summers, where did everybody sleep? Up on the roof. That's exactly right. They went up on the roof, and they saw these things. They saw comets. They saw incredible configurations. And one of the great configurations that occurred at this time, now this is just speculating. I'm not saying this is gospel truth, but one of the astronomers I read about said that there was an incredible configuration. You've all seen Venus in the night sky, how bright that is. Jupiter and Venus came so close together that they looked like a single object. And the amazing thing, it would have appeared together in the western sky in 2 BC, which is one of the reasons why we think possibly that might be the actual date when this thing happened. And there's a thing, I think it's called retro, retro loop or retrograde, where a star or a configuration stops briefly in its northern movement, stationary for one night, and then begins to move back in another direction. Well, guess what they found out? The configuration of Venus and Jupiter, if you're looking at it from the east, would have appeared to have stopped directly over Bethlehem on the 25th of December and would have been stationary for that day, and then after that would have started to move 
again in a subleader and that would have broken up. Just saying, kind of interesting, don't you think? But all of these things are taking place. So somewhere, you know, historians argue back and forth, but somewhere between 7 and probably 2 BC, Jesus of Nazareth was born. An amazing, the greatest moment in history, the moment of the incarnation. Now some say, well, why don't we correct the date? But if we did, what would happen to the Battle of Hastings? <laughs> Actually, who cares about the Battle of Hastings? I like these guys fighting each other. But anyway, <laughs> Columbus discovery of America would be really difficult. But there seems to be a certain movement, especially with the redating of Herod's death, back to 2 BC as a possible date. But one of the things, I taught world religions for a number of years, I would like to share with you, touching upon the birth of Jesus. And here I think it's important to reflect upon this historically. What I'd like to read from you is an account from uh, a sacred text concerning the birth of Buddha. It's called the Lalita Vistrara. And so I'm going to read this to you. It's an account of the birth of Buddha. It's very beautiful. I would just like you to listen to it with me. And this is the account of the birth of Siddhartha Gautama Buddha. Then Mayadevi, surrounded by 84,000 chariots drawn by horses, 84,000 chariots hitched to elephants, adorned with ornaments of every kind, protected by an army of 84,000 soldiers of heroic courage, handsome and well-built, armed with shield and cuirass, preceded by 60,000 women of Kakya, protected by 40,000 members of the household of Kuladana on his father's side, old and young and mature alike, surrounded by 60,000 members of the inner circle of King Kuladama's court, singing and producing symphony of all manner of musical instruments, surrounded by 80,000 daughters of Naga, 80,000 daughters of Gandavara, 80,000 daughters of Kinara, 80,000 daughters of Asura. After completing all manner of preparation and making ready all manner of adornment, singing songs and making all manner of acclamation, followed by this great retinue, the queen came out of the palace. The whole garden of Lumbini, flowing with perfumed waters, was filled with divine flowers and all the trees, the most beautiful of the garden, although it was not the time of year for it, were decked in leaf and fruit. The garden was perfectly adorned by the gods, just as the garden of Mikraka is perfectly adorned by the gods. Then Mayadevi entering the garden of Lumbini, and leaving her magnificent chariot surrounded by the daughters of men and gods, went from one tree to the other, from one wood to the other, looking at all the trees one after the other until she came to the Plakcha tree, the most precious among the precious trees with its finely balanced crown of branches, rich in beautiful leaves and gems, all covered with flowers of gods and men, exhaling the sweetest aroma from its branches, were decked in the raiment of the most beautiful hues, sparkling with manifold luster and hue. And it goes on. Thousands of precious stones, completely covered with every manner of jewel from root to trunk and branches and leaves, those well-balanced and symmetrical branches while the ground was all covered with a tapestry of grass, green as a peacock's tail and soft to touch. This tree, beautiful and well blemished, she now approached. Suddenly this tree, through the power of Bodhisattva, bent down in salutation, then Manyadevi, stretching out her right arm like a lightning bolt that furls its way across the sky, then taking a branch of the tree as a sign of blessing and looking to the distant horizon of the sky and yawning, remained motionless. At that moment, the 60,000 Asparsa, drawing close to serve her, formed an honorary escort. Accompanied by like supernatural power, Bodhisattva entered into his mother's womb. At the end of ten full months, he issued from his mother's side, endowed with memory, knowledge, without ever having been touched by the impurity of his mother's womb. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, it's a beautiful description. But just for our purposes today, I'm going to shift from that, and I'm going to read you the account of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, as found in Luke's Gospel. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled in a census. This was the first census, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be enrolled, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Can you see the difference? 
Okay, the, but the point is, one is absolutely beautiful, but it is mythology. It's beautiful, and it's communicating beautiful things, but it's mythology. The other one is history. Real things, real things that happen to real people in history. God entering into time. That's the beauty of the incarnation. Who is Jesus Christ? Lewis put it very beautifully. He's either what he claimed he was, he's God, or he's a monster. What human being can say, unless you love me more than you love your mother and father, you're not worthy of me. I say, back off. Tell me I have to love you more than I love my folks, all right? Do you see the point? Either he is what he claimed to be, so who is he? Well, the church has always said, second person of the Trinity, whom the Father sent in the world to be born of the Virgin Mary in order to save the world from sin. And that's the fundamental truth. Chesterton used to always say the one dogma that never has to be proven is the dogma of original sin. <laughs> There's something wrong with us. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we gossip. We do all sorts of horrible things. There's something fundamentally wrong with us. We lost God's friendship. We could not regain the life of grace left on our own. God could have granted maybe a new natural happiness without and reopened maybe heaven without the incarnation, but that's speculation, just forgiving everything without reparation. But would that really be in keeping with his perfect justice? And also with his will to manifest perfect love. He therefore took the most sublime course possible. His only son became man, representing all humanity to redeem us by his life, his passion, and his death. But perfect reparation to make up for this great evil, this great wounding that took place, could only be done by someone who was man and at the same time God. That's why we speak of Jesus as being a mediator. You know what a mediator is, right? There's a crisis, you know, President Trump would appoint, or whoever's president would appoint, a federal mediator, a go-between, someone who has sympathy with both sides, acceptable to both sides. So Christ is our mediator. He's our great go-between. So believing in the incarnation, we profess with the infallible church that in Jesus there are two distinct natures, two distinct natures. Yet they're united in such a way that there in, is in Jesus only one individual. He is fully human. As you know, he's a man like us in every single way except sin. But because he doesn't sin doesn't make him less human. It makes him more human, right? Because he's totally the man for others. He's not caught up in himself. You know, when you do something that's really wrong and you need to go to confession, what have you done to your humanity? You've debased your humanity. When you do something good, something virtuous, you're fully alive. That's why the saints are the ones who are fully alive. John Paul was fully alive. Mother Teresa was fully alive. Francis of Assisi, fully alive. Dominic, fully alive. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? And so Jesus was fully alive, and that's what we want to be. We want to be fully alive, especially at this time of year. All right? So he is a man like us in all things. All right? So he has a human nature just like ours. But he has a divine nature also that is simply infinite. Simply infinite. He doesn't become less divine by becoming human. Rather, in becoming, in assuming our nature, this divine person exercises, if we think about it, the most loving, the most merciful act of condescension coming down to be one with us. And time and time again, he insists on faith in him as the condition for salvation. So why does he become a man to give us the strongest support for what we hope for, what we're really longing for with all of this sort of deep desire? We're all creatures of desire. Nothing here on earth can fully satisfy us. Remember the great quote from St. Augustine? You've made our hearts restless, O Lord, and they will not rest until they rest in thee. And this is the problem with our modern world. They're not turning to Christ, and in a fevered pursuit, whether it's technology or new forms of communicate, whatever it is, trying to fill up this emptiness. And as soon as you get it, you realize you want more, you need more. That's because we're made for the eternal, we're made for God. That's what we are made for. And that's why Jesus comes down. 
And how many times do we pander to our lower cravings all the time? We know we shouldn't do this. But this is part of the reason why it's so important that Jesus comes, because it's not only that he comes to show us that he loves us, he enables us. He gives us strength to overcome our passions. A life of virtue now becomes possible. Not only virtue, a life of sanctity. A life of holiness now becomes possible. He is the principle of holiness. He's its inspiration, but he's also the primary source of holiness. The incarnation, if we reflect upon it as we should at this time of year, really trying to get beyond the fatigue and trying to contemplate what this really means. That the hand that fashioned the universe is now as a little infant going to have to try to reach up and struggle just to touch his mother's face. That's an amazing thing. An amazing thing. And imagine the incredible joy that Mary experiences after nine months of being a walking tabernacle. Huh? No wonder she's full of grace. She was literally filled with grace. She had Jesus inside. And then you know one of the great joys, as soon as the baby's born, you get to look at it. And you know what her baby looked like? You know who he looked like? Looked like his mother, right? Because she gave everything to his human nature. But one of the great things since the eyes of the widow of the soul when that child opened up his eyes for the first time, that's when Mary realized he's got his father's eyes. Imagine looking into those eyes, the windows of the soul, and what she would have seen. Do I pick him up? Do I hold him? Do I kneel down and adore him? Do I nurse him? Does he really need me? And imagine as the child reaches to be wanted by by God that way. There's so much we need to think about. Catholicism, Christianity, it's so weird. <laughs> we really need to think more about it. It's just incredible. It's such great news. It is such beautiful good news. God became man not because he had to. He didn't have to become a man. He became a man because he freely chose to do this, taking on a mortal nature to show us one thing, how much he loves us. One of my favorite passages in Pius the, uh, Pius XII's encyclical on the mystical body, he said, Jesus Christ thought of each one of us during his passion as a mother contemplates her babe playing on her lap because he had the irradiation of the beatific vision. What an incredible consolation that is that he thought of us. But then also we recognize how our sins hurt him too because when someone loves you so much and you let them down, you want to do everything you can to repair that or to make up for that image. But if we think about what this means, we're inspired to gratitude and to selfless generosity. Think psychologically. Every single thing we know about love, love always seeks to be united to the object that it loves, right? If you love chocolate milkshakes, you know what you're going to do? You're going to seek union with that chocolate milkshake. <laughs> If you like Guinness, no, okay, we'll stop there. All right. <laughs> You're going to want to be united to that. So when young people get hit with that goo-goo-gaga, you probably all had it sometime, what Plato called divine madness, when you fall in love, you know, and you, you get goofy, but you wonder, what are they doing all the time? They're on the phone all the time. They're texting all the time. And you ask them, what are you talking about? What are you texting about? I don't know. They really don't know. And it really doesn't matter because what they really want to do is to be together. That's why at every great love feast in our culture that still continues, whether it be Thanksgiving, maybe even more importantly at Christmas, what do you have to have at Christmas? Everybody has to be together, right? And if someone's still in Afghanistan, someone's overseas, it's just not the same. Love always seeks and desires union. God is love. And since he is love, what does he seek more than anything else? He seeks union. So what do we have in Jesus Christ? The most intimate union possible, conceivable, where a human nature and the divine nature are united, we say, in one hypostasis. It's such a perfect union. There's only one person the divine person. It's the human nature of the word. That's the union that he seeks. But we also know that the language of love in our fallen state is suffering. The true test, the acid test of any love, are you willing to suffer for the sake of the beloved? 
right? If you're not willing to suffer for the sake of the beloved, it's not love. You're in love with yourself. You're not in love with the other. You have to be willing to suffer. So true love in our fallen state always includes a willingness to suffer for the sake of the beloved. And the problem of suffering and evil tormented the great St. Augustine. He was, this was one of the big problems that he had trying to deal with this. And he wrote in his confessions, I saw it whence evil comes, and there was no solution, as he says, till I found it in our holy religion, till I found it in the faith. And this is where is the fruit of this great Institute of Catholic Culture, we want you all to go out and become evangelized and try to communicate this. There's going to come a time in your life, has happened probably many times already, when someone's going to ask, why is there suffering? Why did this, in fact, happen to me? All right? Does God really care about pain? The book of Ecclesiastes struggled with that question. What's the meaning and the purpose of life? Job struggled with it. Why was I not swept away like an untimely birth? Why do you persecute me? Asking these great questions. Do you have flesh like a human being? Do you have eyes like a human being? Do you feel as we feel? Job keeps asking that question over and over again. Does he care about pain? Does he know? Does he know what it's like to have a brain tumor or horrible reoccurring migraine headaches that keep hitting you so much you cannot bear the pain in your head? Does he know what it's like to endure a drought, like what some of the poor folks in Africa have been enduring, where you're suffering from a thirst, a thirst so bad they could just drive you insane? Does he know what it's like to go without food, say to spend a whole week without eating anything, go for 10 days without eating anything, go for a month without eating anything? Does he know what it's like to lose a parent, to have a father die, or a close friend or a loved one with that heart-wrenching agony and grief that it hurts so bad you really can't say anything. All you can do is groan deeply in spirit and sigh and weep. You can't verbalize it. Does he know what it's like to be a refugee where you're driven away from your home and threatened with death? Does he know what it's like to be innocent, and even though you're innocent, to be cruelly tortured and be cast into a prison and deprived of freedom and treated horribly? Does he know what it's like to have horrible physical pain, the type of physical pain, sciatica, so sharp it can sort of knock the heart off a man. You don't feel like living anymore because the pain is so intense. Does he know what it's like to be abandoned by one's friends, may even be betrayed by somebody you loved, really reached out to, even to the point where you were dying for them. Does he really know what that's like? <laughs> well, the divine certitude of our faith says, yeah, he knows exactly what that's like. And he has proved that to the last drop of his blood, the last beating of his heart. He has shown us that he truly does love us and he does understand it. And that suffering does have a meaning and it does have a purpose. So when we think about Christmas, when we think about the fullness of time, we think about our life together. Uh, Christ is not just in heaven where he ascended at the right hand of the Father. He's also on earth. He's the head of the mystical body, which is his church. And of course, he's right above us in the Eucharist. God is right there. Jesus Christ is right there. How often do we visit him? Make a visit to the Adoration Chapel. It just dropped in the church. God is there, really and truly present. Because what has happened, because of the incarnation, because of his suffering and death, a channel of grace has been opened in our world that has changed everything. It's a famous story I heard once Fulton Sheen tell, and I'll just sort of close with this. There was a young girl who was only 16 years old, finally went out on her first date. She lived on a block where there were, have you ever been boxed where there's big hedges in the front and the houses are all really recessed from the property? Went out on her first ever date. Came back home, was dropped off, the guy drove away. There was a guy lurking in the bushes, viciously attacked her, raped her brutally. First date, 16 years old. About a month later, she was found to be expecting a baby. And she's really upset. Uh, her mother believed her, but, you know, people in the choir at school <laughs> did not believe her. Her schoolmates didn't believe her. 
said, isn't that kind of sad having a girl like that, you know, first date and this happens. She wrote to Fulton Sheen and said, I'm in incredible pain and suffering. I can't bear this. What advice can you give me? And as only Fulton Sheen could do, he wrote back and said, all of this suffering you are going through because you've taken on the sin of one man. Suppose you took upon yourself the sins of 20 men. Suppose you took on the sins of 40. Suppose you took on the sins of 100. You might even begin to have a bloody sweat. That girl wrote back, I understand, and she said, I will pray for the man who did this to me every day for the rest of my life. I will pray for him. Now, I would submit to you that is not naturally possible on a purely human level. But with Christ, it becomes possible. There is a channel of grace that is opened up into time and into history. And that channel of grace is real. The Eucharist is real. The sacraments are real. Confession is real. Every time that priest raises his hand in absolution, the blood of Christ is running over us. And it's cleansing us. And that blood is scarlet, but we're made whiter than snow. That's what's happening. That's the gift. And that channel of grace is still operative. It always has been ever since he came to this earth incarnate as a baby with his suffering and death. And that's why all throughout history, what do we get? We get Peter. We get St. Paul. We get Augustine. We get St. Basil. John Damascene. Go all the way down. You get Francis. You get Dominic. Francis de Sales. All right. St. Louis de Marillac, St. Bernadette. In every age, the reality of that stream of grace, that channel has been opened because of the fullness of time. And after all, he is, as he himself said, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Time and history in our lives have a purpose. They don't just move in meaningless cycles. All of our lives are fraught with meaning and purpose because of that babe who was born in Bethlehem who brought us our great redemption. And because it's absolutely true, when we look at that babe at Bethlehem, we have to recognize what he is really saying to all of us. Behold, I make all things new. Thank you very much. Okay, questions and answers. Who's first? Doctor, the uh, term, the fullness of time. Yes. I'm having a little problem, you know, really conceptualizing that. And if that were then, what is now? We are, that's a, that is a really good question. Fullness of time refers to the preparation coming up to that. Once you get to the fullness of time, you are always in the fullness of time. Once Christ comes, time takes on new meaning, and it's just like if someone was asked you, are you in the last times, the answer is yes, because we've entered into the fullness of time. I think what Paul was doing, though, was looking back, and so many things appeared mysterious, you know, like the wall between the Jew and the Gentile, and so many other things trying to make sense of those things. But as he's reflecting upon all of this, obviously God in his wisdom picked the time that was best suited for the full revelation that Jesus Christ had given. Now, of course, prophecy had ceased in Israel for 400 years, you know. So the, the Jewish people at that time in their synagogues, in their temple, were reading the scripture, praying the scriptures, etc. But there was no prophet for almost four centuries. So that's why when this sort of wild man looking like Elijah starts crying, repent, the kingdom is at hand, all right, everyone sort of freaked out. Okay, people from Syria and all over began flocking to him, and it really did heighten incredible expectations that this was the actual time. So directly to your question, fullness of time talks about everything leading up, but once we get to that, because God has now entered into time, and because of that, everything has been changed and has taken on a new meaning, and there's a perfection to the teaching and the truth that he has brought. It just needs to be spread, all right? We are still in the fullness of time now. That's a great question. Thank you. Good evening, Dr. O'Donnell. You mentioned uh, Pius XII comedy and, uh, about on the Passion. Where was the source of that? That was his encyclical on the mystical body, Mystici Corporis. Of course. That's Thank where you. you'll find it in there. Beautiful, beautiful encyclical. Another One question. of our great forgotten popes. Magnificent magisterium. Another question coming in from online. This is from Lisa. Hi, Lisa. What was it that was instituted or created 
so on and so forth. In 13 BC, something paches, I think to signify the Pax Romana. Yeah. There were the Roman Senate to celebrate uh, Augustus Caesar's achievement, it's called the Ara Pacis, uh, the Altar of Peace. And we knew about it, but archaeologists found it very close to the tomb of Augustus Caesar, and it's been completely reconstructed. You can see images of Augustus Caesar, uh, and they're t taking animals off to sacrifice. But the reason it's so important is because Christ comes in the fullness of time, the world had never known such peace. And of course, he is the Prince of Peace. So to be born into that situation was just truly remarkable. So the fact that the Arapachis is, a, is sort of like a monument in white marble to the fact that the entire world was in peace at that time. So it's called the Arapachis. And if you go to Rome, you can visit it. They charge you money now, but it's okay. It was a great reconstruction. But you can get in, you can see it through glass. But if you really want to get in, it's really worthwhile. They have a brochure you can take and they identify many of the figures. But it's just, when you have those sort of connections, you realize this was the Caesar, this altar was built right at the time of the incarnation and the entire world had experienced peace. See, it was something that the, the Middle Ages never forgot. You know, when Charlemagne created his empire, what do you want to call it? the Holy Roman Empire. Everyone harks back to that golden age of Augustus when cities were flourishing, trade was flourishing, and the whole world was at peace. That was part of the puzzle that made it the fullness of time. So it's the Ara Pacis, A-R-A, new word, P-A-C-I-S, Ara Pacis, the altar of peace. Dr. O'Donnell, I just didn't get to the Bible uh, in time to catch the verse that you mentioned in Galatians. Oh, it's Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter four, right? You should read the whole paragraph right at the beginning. That's where you'll find in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman. Uh, Dr. O'Donnell, you mentioned the river of oil uh, in 16 BC. How would, like, if I went home to look that up, that's fascinating. You can find it because it's, it's, it's fascinating. See, the Jewish people never forgot it, and when Peter and Paul would have first gone to Rome, they would have gone to Trastevere. So this story would have circulated. The oldest church in Rome dedicated to the Blessed Mother, it's not Maria Maggiore, it's Santa Maria in Trastevere. And that church is built over the exact spot. And if you enter into, uh, walk up the main nave, you go up right to where the communion is, they have a big plaque there with a, with a grate, and it's called Fons Olio, the fountain of oil, and it marks the spot where that took place. Fons Olio, F-O-N-S, new word, I believe it's O-L-E-O, Fons Olio. Pope yeah. Benedict said that he, he found a prophecy of Christ in Plato's Republic, but I don't remember him elaborating on that. At you know anything about it? Can you fill me in on no, it? No, but you're going to make me go look for that. Yeah. <laughs> if he found something in Plato, that'd be really awesome. I'd, let me know if you have it. I, I can't speak to that. I'm not familiar with that. He mentioned it in, near the beginning of the first volume of Jesus of Nazareth, but he didn't elaborate hmm. Well, I'll take a look right after this is over then, because I have it right here. I know he made a specific reference to the fourth Ecologue of Virgil, but if Plato's in there, we'll take a look at that too. The first published one, not the chronologically first one. Oh, the first one. Okay. So I don't have that. Sorry. But I will look it up. Thank you for that. Dr. O'Donnell, I was just wondering, um, that quote you said about Jesus thought of us during his passion, um, like children playing on his mother's lap. And I was just wondering who that was from. You might have said it. That was Pius XII. Same question. Oh, okay. Pius XII. The encyclical okay. was his encyclical on the mystical body, which the daughters okay. of St. Paul have. You can also get it. I know everything's online now, but okay, you can look there. It's a beautiful, beautiful encyclical. I guess my, uh, my question would be, how would you answer the objection that a lot of people sometimes bring, uh, the sort of historical and prophetic coincidences that are kind of used as a defense seem to kind of bolster the claim that it's like a tidy fabrication um, when people object in that manner and they say that all these coincidences are just all too neat how do i know that it's not a fabrication if that makes sense that what's a fabrication uh, the idea that the gospel narratives are kind of fitting a historical moment rather than fitting in the historical moment in that they were constructed with the uh idea in mind that, oh, we see all these historical happenings, we're going to make a story that fits them, if that makes sense. Because that's an objection that's 
frequently. Well, I don't think it really makes sense. And the, yeah. th there's a larger apologetic that you would need to bring in there. Uh, no one's really going to die for something that, that they made up or that they're going to lie about. And uh, the fact of the matter is there is so much material that if you approach the Gospels as a historian in terms of the cultural milieu of first century Judaism, and you examine that, everything from the, the, the coin to tribute to the description of the Sadducees, description of the Pharisees, uh, the reactions of the apostles, uh, if you're going to make something up, you're not going to make it up like this. It includes episodes that really compromise Jesus and really compromise you know, the apostles as well. The apostles come across as dumb, unbelieving. Even if you really want to convince someone of the resurrection, they're astounded. They don't believe it. And he says, feel me. I'm a ghost. You know? But you, there's this sort of dullness. Their minds were closed. They were darkened. So I think really looking at the cultural milieu, you find that everything matches beautifully. I was just even reading that they... You know, they found Pontius Pilate's name inscribed at Caesar, out at Caesarea by the sea, and evidently one of his signet ring. They found his signet ring. So all of these things seem to really fit. But I think even passages where you, you're really seeing Jesus as he was encountered in real life. You know, uh, you know his, his own relatives come up and said, he's beside himself. He's lost his mind. He's crazy. He's casting out demons by the devil. You know, and you have these, these this is what was actually thrown at. And certain things like the driving out of the Gadarene demoniac demons into all those poor little pigs, what a waste of good pork, you know, jumping into the Sea of Galilee, you know. No, but I'm serious, you, 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 find, you, you find all of these type of things. Or even the cleansing of the temple, people, he fashioned a whip of cords and drove people out and threw the money changers out. So it, it's, a, it's a much larger question to go into, but the idea that they're artificial constructs written backward, it just doesn't seem to stand the test of true literary criticism and historical criticism. That's kind of a quick answer, but I hope that's helpful. Thank Good you, question. Dr. Thank you. Thank you. We'll end with this question right here. Sorry. Doctor, you mentioned that there's some new information about the death of Herod, where previously we thought he had passed away 4 BC. That's right. Now it's 2 BC. Could you describe that information, please? It was very sim yeah, simple. I'd like to do more research this off than myself, but traditionally they've said because the medieval manuscripts that we have from Josephus claim that he died in 4 BC, we found an older manuscript that actually said it was 1 BC. And so some of the things that are interesting, there was reference to like a total lunar eclipse. There was no total lunar eclipse during 4 BC. And so there was, however, in 1 BC. And the details that Josephus gives us concerning all of the funeral arrangements and what Herod was involved in would seem to take a lot more time than what you would have in 4 BC. But this is something that would still probably be hotly debated, but there's a number of things that indicate it might actually have been 1 BC. It also fits in also with the 2 BC, possibly as far as the star configuration and, and things like that as well. So that's something we'll still have to continue to look, and I'm sure will continue to be debated. But there's some sense there was an even older manuscript. I'd have to do research and find out where that was, but said it was actually 1 BC, and the 4 might actually be a copyist error. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you. God bless you, everybody. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.